Stay up to date on the groundbreaking tests and solutions powering the healthcare system. You're listening to Diagnostic Dialogues from Quest Diagnostics. Here's your host, Dr. Pat Alicia. Welcome to Diagnostic Dialogues, Innovation Insight presented by Quest Diagnostics, where we have the opportunity to speak with top researchers, doctors, and thought leaders about the hottest topics in healthcare. From the latest in cutting edge research to what's coming next in the world of diagnostic medicine, this is your inside track on the engines that power the healthcare ecosystem. I'm your host, Dr. Patalaja, and today I have the opportunity and the honor of speaking with two truly wonderful women. Vice President and General Manager of Women's Health and Reproductive Health at Quest Diagnostics, Kathleen Valentine, and Quest's Director and Medical Science Liaison of Women's Health, Dr. Karen Rassico. Kathleen and Karen are with me today to talk about women's health through the dual lens of a scientist, Karen Rassico, PhD, and a business executive, Kathleen Valentine, Vice President and General Manager. Our general focus will be on women's health and well-being, but we will also touch on subjects such as sexually transmitted infections, genetics, mental health, and of course, health equity. I, for one, am looking forward to hearing from these women who I have the opportunity to work with almost every day. They have vast amounts of knowledge, experience, insight, and of course, wit. This is an episode that I'm certainly looking forward to, and I'm sure you are going to enjoy. Karen and Kathleen, welcome to the show. Throughout the years, Quest Diagnostics has remained steadfast in its commitment to health equity and treating women throughout their lives. I wanted to start by asking you both, what do you mean when you talk about women's health? And as we talk about women's health, why is health and well-being so vitally important? And Kathleen, let me start with you on that, and then we'll pass it off to Karen. Great, Pat, and thanks for having me here. It's great to be with you and to talk about this really important subject. So look, when you think about women's health and its role in our lives, think about the women that you know, yourself, your spouse, family member, friend, women are really the CEO and the core of every healthcare decision that's made in a family in the United States today. And so having a, a woman who is well cared for, who takes care of herself, is then in a much better position to take care of those all around her. And so when you think about what Quest Diagnostics brings to the table, We are at the center of healthcare in the United States. We serve a third of all U.S. adult populations. We serve half of all the U.S. hospitals and physicians. And we provide tremendous access to healthcare centers, research, and information for patients. When it comes to women's health, Quest Diagnostics provides care for all stages of a woman's life and provides testing that you as a patient or a healthcare clinician can count on providing the insights that you need to make informed decisions. So Karen, same question for you. Why is it so important? Yeah. So when I think of women's health, I think of it, I come from it with a different angle that Kathleen, you know, I think of women's health as caring for someone with a truly unique physiology women have the unique physiology in their ability to carry and support life. 
women are truly unique from the day that they're born throughout their entire lifespan. And so when I think of women's health, I really think of this as something that's unique from the health and lifespan of a man. And this, as we've gone through the decades in medicine uh, in the last century, we've really had to fight for understanding and supporting women's health specifically. Clinical trials very recently only used men in like as subjects of clinical trials. So we really have been fighting to understand our own uh, physiology and get our own drug treatments, understand our own life segments. And so again, I really think of women's health as almost completely separate from medicine when we think about it in a man. So I want to pick up on that, Karen, and I'm going to ask Kathleen to follow up on this. Why has it been such a fight for women's health to be recognized? I mean, we talk about you know men's health, prostate exams and heart disease and you name it, and there's a huge focus on men's health. What is it about women's health that we've just missed? And how are we addressing that at Quest right now? Men have ruled the world. <laughs> so as women have gained rights, we have also started to gain understandings. For some time, it wasn't really appreciated that our physiologies truly were unique outside the fact that we have ovaries and not testicles. As we kind of learned more, once we started actually letting women be a part of clinical trials, it was profound what we discovered. Discovering just things like our basic heart health, things that didn't have to do with reproduction were also truly and distinctly different in women versus men. So as we've really kind of moved forward and learned that we truly are unique and need to be considered uniquely when we're developing drugs, when we're developing algorithms for making health choices throughout our life, as we've learned how different we are and unique we are, the research community, the medical community really has stepped up. And it's in the National Institutes of Health. It's a major, major research component of all the different areas in health now. You have to consider women versus men in all research through, through the NIH now. So everyone has really stepped up. And we've also followed through with this in at Quest Diagnostics, like women's health is we are our own segment. We truly have expertise both on the business side and the scientific and medical side, and focus truly distinctly on women. We really do, starting with reproductive health, of course, but moving forward from reproductive health, you know, we work with other clinical segments to try to, again, identify unique needs of women within cardiovascular, within endocrinology, within all the different aspects of life. And this is something that we are catching up on, but is definitely front and center for us now. So Kathleen, I want to ask you the same question. Why has it been so hard for people to capture the importance of women's health? And where are you as a business executive working with Dr. Rasko as a scientist going with this, going forward? Look, I would echo what Karen shared in that I'd say over the last century, right? It's been building in terms of women getting a much stronger, more powerful voice in healthcare. Healthcare, like other industries, has been traditionally dominated by men. And so women have a much stronger presence in healthcare delivery across the board. And I think additionally, the insights and the research that Karen touched on is also over the last decades 
been much more represented with the unique attributes, presentations, and implications for women. So we're in a much better place today than we were 100 years ago, but we still have a long way to go. Quest Diagnostics, we recognize those unique needs in women, and we have a specialized, focused business centered around that to make sure that we serve the healthcare clinicians who serve and treat women, as well as making sure that women's needs are addressed in a helpful way as patients and caretakers. And when you think about how women's health presents uniquely, it's not just on the traditional kind of women's health reproductive aspects that we are interested in as an example, but like Karen touched on, cardiovascular health. Heart disease is the number one killer of women in the United States. One in five female deaths is attributable to heart disease. But you know, we recognize that advanced cardio health is important that women get access to it. We provide the insights and information to help clinicians and patients understand a woman's heart health and provide them with the resources, tools, and information to make informed decisions as one example. So I'm thinking about what you all just said in through the lens of disparities. And obviously we've had smaller number of women in the executive roles in the C-suites than we have had men. Do you think that that level of inequity in the C-suite has also carried over to inequities in women's health care? Kathleen, I want to ask you and then pivot over to Karen. So I would say, unfortunately, yes. I think, again, the more representation we have in both the C-suite, in the healthcare delivery, in every aspect of our lives, where we have better representation of women, then it looks like the, the general population, right? And that's kind of the work that we still need to do. In terms of the healthcare disparities and kind of health equity, we see that, right? We see that women are disproportionately impacted by access to care, certainly in terms of ethnic, socioeconomic, racial disparities, we see that as well. In terms of being able to access care, food, transportation, mental health benefits, it's much more difficult. And so what Quest is doing is providing what education, access to health care through our Quest for Health Equity program. We're doing a lot on this front to educate the public and importantly, provide ex- access to women. So Dr. Resco, the disparities that you fought through, do you think those have carried over? I mean, I think, you know, again, in academia, in the corporate world, it's different now than it was 30 or 40 years ago. So what does it mean for women helping women as you ascend into the C-suite roles and into the executive roles? So, you know, I'm studying for my naturalization test right now and darn it, taxation without representation was a big deal, right? Now we're talking with, it's just the same thing here. I don't think that the C-suites that are filled with older men it's I don't think that they you're not going out there looking to discriminate or choose man problems over women problems. But if you don't have a uterus or a vagina, you can't appreciate or understand everything that comes with one. It's not necessarily purposeful, but it's like you need to be properly represented because no one can really appreciate 
what it's like to be a woman unless you're there and you're actually having the opportunity to make the decisions at the levels that where you need to be in in order to actually make changes in in all of these industries, which is the C-suite, right? You need to have those individuals represented so that people at the decision-making levels can be there to kind of affect these decisions where, where it counts. So Kathleen, what's Quest doing or what's going on within your organization that demonstrates the commitment to women's health and to health equity? First, we're providing access to care, right? Access to care for women, but particularly women who are have maybe less means or access to to that healthcare readily. We have tremendous presence around the United States. We've got more than 7,000 retail sites and access points for patients to get care and get access to our testing as an example. In terms of providing education and resources to patients, we're doing a continue to do a lot of work on that front as well. Our Health Trends publication is a research arm of Quest where we access millions of data records, tens of millions of data records to dig in, do research, and publish to educate the clinician community, but also to educate patients. And so getting access to information and to care sites for patients is a really important pillar for us in terms of area of focus. And then we also want to make sure that patients have access to testing and diagnostic insights in the areas of prescription drug medication, substance use disorder treatment. We have a business focused on providing those services to patients. We want to make sure that women are getting access to that care as well, as well as screening, right? Routine screening for things like different cancers, whether it be hereditary cancer, genetic or cervical cancer screening, as an example, that's really important. And giving that patients access to the information and to the care is a key priority for us. Information, access to care. And I realize we also talk about powering affordable care, which is a big North Star for Quest. So you mentioned screening. And Dr. Asco, tell me why it's so important to screen individuals. And what are you looking for in a well-woman examination when you're screening? So for cervical cancer screening, for example, this is really the big one where, you know, cervical cancer used to be a major killer, used to be one of the more prevalent cancers. And because of our screening advances, it really is a small number. I believe 7,000 cases a year is an estimate for cervical cancer now which obviously it's still present, but it really has, because of screening, become a much less significant cause of death in women. So again, I I say this because, you know, this, the decrease is directly associated with the introduction first or 40 years ago of the PAP, a cervical cytology smear, and then further increased with molecular testing for HPV or human papillomavirus, which is the primary cause of cervical cancer. So cervical cancer screening, really, it's beginning. There's a number of strategies, but really we support the strategy wherein women begin being screened at 20 years of age, starting to do uh, cervical cytology. And they really go on until they're 65 years of age, unless they have some risk factors for which they will actually continue to go past that. And so what you're really doing with screening is you are identifying any kind of abnormalities in the cervix before it can actually advance to cancer. So 
one kind of saving grace we have with cervical cancer is it takes a very, for almost all individuals, it takes a really, really long time to develop. Like the median being 10 to 15 years for cervical cancer to develop once you're infected with the virus that causes it. So there really is ample opportunity to screen and catch what we call pre-cancer before it actually gets to an advanced disease. And the great thing is, is once it's found in a precancer stage, we can remove a precancer's lesion and prevent cancer in nearly all cases of precancer, right? So being screened really can truly protect you from cervical cancer in, in almost all cases. That's always the, the best example of why screening is important because in cervical cancer, like, yes, if you don't get screened and you have an advanced stage disease, then cervical cancer will kill you, but it's almost completely preventable with screening. Now with STIs, it's a slightly different story. And again, this is something that can negatively impact women more so than it can impact men. And therefore, we actually have screening guidelines for women, not men, for sexually transmitted infections. For basically sexually active women up to the age of 25, they should be screened for at least the two most prevalent bacterial STIs, that is chlamydia and gonorrhea, at their annual visit. And other than discomfort, there are a lot of emotional and societal stigmas associated with STIs. But in women, if they're undetected and left, they actually can lead to lifetime issues with fertility, with pains. Left unchecked, they really can lead to things like pelvic inflammatory disease, which can be debilitating. And this can eventually lead to actual like infertility in women. So again, sometimes I would even say often these bacterial STIs are not symptomatic and because of their prevalence in young women and because of the severe potential outcomes such as infertility and chronic pain issues with PID really is important that they are screened, especially right now, at least from early age sexual activity till 25. And then after that, symptomatic or women should continue to come in for a diagnostic test or new partner, any kind of more than one partner, kind of high, what we call high risk. I don't like the word high risk activities, but anytime there's a new sexual partner in your life or any kind of symptoms, again, it's not worth tossing the coin over. It just go in, get screened or get a diagnostic test. So Kathleen, I want to ask you this question. I mean, you're a business executive leading a woman's health franchise in a large organization you work with scientists and physicians all the time. If you're speaking to other non-scientists um, and non-physicians, what's your perspective or what's your take on screening for STIs and cervical cancer? How do you see it? How do you talk to people about it? If I just step back, right? So I'm a woman, I'm married, I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend. And when I think about how my family relies on me as the wife, the mom, the daughter. It kind of comes back to like take care of oneself first, right? And the better that I can take care of myself, the better I'm going to be for everyone around me that I love. And you think about what screening can do. 
So to me, screening is the, okay, whether it's going for my annual mammogram or going for my annual pelvic exam or going for my annual wellness visit, the burden or headache of doing that, it saves me infinitely, right? In terms of kind of check it off, I'm good to go until kind of my next visit. And to the extent that anything is discovered, like Karen was describing earlier on precancerous lesions, if anything is discovered, being able to identify it early, that, that's like the biggest win, is identifying a problem early, whether it's going for a colorectal screening exam, a cervical cancer screening, hereditary cancer screening, and advanced screening for heart health, any type of screen, that's what you're doing. You're either giving yourself the kind of like green check mark, good to go, or it looks like there's something, let's intervene now, let's intervene early and either solve the problem or get you into some sort of treatment that's going to make you better for the long haul. That to me is the synopsis of why screen. And when you think about serving the unique needs of women and the clinicians who serve those unique needs of women and specialize in that area, particularly OBGYNs. When you think about screening, it really is going back to serving women through all phases of their life. So screening for sexual health from the time a woman is sexually active from their teens all the way through their life they should be screened for sexual health. Cardiometabolic health, that screening should occur throughout a woman's life, regardless of age, regardless of kind of phase of life she's in, to make sure that her heart is pumping healthy, diabetes screening, all of those things. When you think about endocrinology, right? As women, we know we go through a lot of hormonal changes in our lifetime. And so making sure that our hormones are as balanced as they can be is really, really important when you think about thyroid conditions that definitely are more, you know, certainly prevalent in women. When you think about pregnancy and whether it's pre-pregnancy planning, i.e. fertility, when you think about infertility in this country, 10 to 15% of all couples in the U.S. are affected by infertility. And so providing kind of the insights and the care for both partners, right? Female, male partner is really, really important. And so doing that kind of screening and understanding, kind of trying to get answers to the questions that you have. So as you embark on your pregnancy journey and then throughout the trimesters of pregnancy, doing those screenings, again, protects mom, protects baby, and the like. So I just kind of bring it all back to regardless of what phase of life I'm in, as an example, it's making sure that we're doing what we should do for ourselves so that we can continue to support and love those around us. And from a business perspective, imparting our specialization to our clinician customers, whether it be an OBGYN, a health system, a primary care physician, whoever it might be, making sure that they have the insights and access to care that they can provide to women. I think that's the most powerful thing. And woman, a woman as a patient and as a consumer of healthcare, it's really important that we use our voice in making sure that we're getting screened for the things that matter to us.
But when you talk about using your voice, and I'm going to follow up on that, Kathleen, and ask the same of Karen, you all are very, very clear when you're using your voice. You have a sense of what to ask, but how do we empower other women to know what to ask when they're visiting their doctor, whether they're 25 or 35 or 45 or 55, as you said, all different stages in their lives. How do you empower them to understand what changes they're going through and what they should be asking of their doctor? So first to you, Kathleen, and then to you, Karen. Yeah, I think that's a great question because I think we have a little bit of a benefit, at least me personally, right? Because I'm I'm working in in the business, as you, as you might say. I think a lot of it is education, driving public awareness, providing kind of educational resources like on the internet, on the web, publishing information, getting the word out is really, really powerful. And that is job number one in terms of accessing a woman as a consumer of healthcare. I think it's through education and providing access to that information. And then on the clinician side, it's also providing education. A lot of clinicians, when we talked earlier about the demographic of who delivers healthcare in this country, we're getting more and more women kind of in those critical roles as we commented already, but there's more to do. And clinicians have limited access to training. Pat, you can speak to this better than anybody in terms of these different areas of specialization. And so a lot of clinicians don't necessarily know. And so continuing to do research, publication, education is a key role for us. And we feel a great responsibility to to provide that to our clinicians, to our patients and the public good. So Karen, same question to you. How do you, in your position, empower women to ask the right questions of their doctors, to engage in those conversations about STIs, about hereditary genetics, about mammography, menopause, or whatever. How do you, or what are you doing to create that platform for women? I think Kathleen really touched on some of the important points there is, first of all, yes, I have a PhD in reproductive biology. I know what to ask and often sadly know more about the answers sometimes than a provider, depending on where you're at. So the issue really is if you have kind of what we touched on before, underserved, underrepresented, or just communities that don't have a lot of access, they may not be having access to a specialty like yourself, an OBGYN, someone who is really trained specifically in women's health and knows what questions to ask, because it really, it, the, the clinician or the provider needs to be asking the questions because you can't rely, I think, on the patient to know what questions to ask. And I think this goes to exactly to the previous points, and this is a lot very much education. So there's community outreach, often through academic grants, a lot often through academic programs to reach underserved populations to make sure that they know what to ask and who to ask and how often to ask, right? And on the other end, it's really going to be important because really these community outreach, these academic programs, they're reaching out to the the patients themselves. And so that's really one arm and that's incredibly important. And that's really something that I think that we do a little bit and especially more recently in our uh, kind of expanded health equities work. But something that I think that I, I look forward to working on more in the future is really partnering with some of these groups who already 
have relationships with some of these different communities throughout the United States and really working with them to see what we can do as as Quest Diagnostics to help with those outreach activities. This includes educating women on the importance of things we already talked about, cervical cancer screening, STI screening, et cetera. But, you know, on the other end, it really comes down to the fact that in a lot of these communities, they are non-specialty providers that are seeing these patients that might require specialty care and making sure that they have the resources and information they need to act as the only OBGYN that that person might be seeing. Right. So I think, again, it's both ways. It's the community side, making sure that women know that these are the questions that they are important and that learning these questions asked now could could save their lives further down the road. And then again, making sure that all forms of clinics and health care providers appreciate and understand the uniqueness of women's health and know and can recognize what questions to ask and all the screening guidelines and make sure that they really do have that specialized care that women require. And oftentimes, even more so those that maybe are underscreened or underrepresented. As I'm listening to you both speak, I see a great opportunity here. I mean, you all are both wonderful educators, great spokespeople on the uh, issues of women's health. But I see this as an opportunity to empower women to ask the right questions for where they are at their specific time in their lives. It's something that maybe we should begin to think about, and maybe we are thinking about it, but embellishing that point, because women's bodies do change throughout their lives, and heart health may not be as important at age 20 as it is at age 50 or 55, and the issues of fertility and STI testing and whatever are gonna be different throughout a woman's life. So giving the woman the you know, kind of the infrastructure or the scaffolding she needs to ask those questions or to engage in those meaningful conversations with her clinician, I think is vitally important to what we'll be doing as we move forward. So I'm gonna pivot just a minute, move away from STIs and well women's health to maternal health care, specifically prenatal screening. And we can talk about carrier screening or we can talk about cell-free DNA. And with that as background, yeah, Kathleen, talk a little bit about the value of carrier screening and then cell-free DNA screening and make the bright line distinction between the two. First, it starts with these are screening tests, right? So as we touched on earlier, the, the power and the importance of screening. And so when it comes to, to pregnancy, there are very important milestones throughout the pregnancy journey. And when you think about what we call genetic carrier screening, that can be done before pregnancy so that the partners have an understanding of what they might be carriers for. And there are a number of genetic mutations that can be identified through genetic carrier screening and they are guideline approved. The American College, College of Obstetrics and Gynecology is one renowned um, organization that puts out guidelines on the particular genetic mutations to screen for. And one partner can be a carrier, both partners could be carriers, and then you obviously have then the, the risk of it presenting in the fetus based on those combinations. The genetic carrier screening that we test for and screen for includes things like cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, and fragile X as a few examples, plus a number of other genetic mutations. And so again, it goes back to 
having a screening test and knowing, right? Knowing, is there something, is there a potential risk or problem there that warrants additional diagnostics? And it's the power of having that information, knowing what the situation is, and then educating, informing the parents, and then also the clinician on what potential or appropriate intervention, treatment intervention is suggested. And so do you have a healthy pregnancy or something that, again, may warrant either some sort of intervention or preparation, right? Preparation is also important. So that's on the genetic carrier screening side, really about kind of the parents, the two, the, the, the couple. On the cell-free DNA or non-invasive prenatal screening, that is a test that is performed at about 10 weeks of gestation, and it tests the fetus for the presentation of certain genetic mutations, things like Down syndrome or other aneuploidy mutations. And so again, it's it's similar. It's having knowing whether there's any sort of potential genetic mutation risk in that screening result, and then provides the information to the clinician to then advise and engage with the mother on if there are additional diagnostic procedures that are warranted or suggested. And having that information, having it early in the gestational process in the pregnancy, and then having the guidance, the counseling to work with the clinician on what appropriate steps may be next is also can be very powerful. And it can either give the peace of mind to say everything looks good and you continue on um, your pregnancy journey, or again, gives you the information that you need to potentially and appropriately make a good treatment decision from that point. Karen, I think that you bring up an interesting point. You, know, you see how conversant Kathleen is with this. Now, you are a very smart, very well-educated PhD who came into the Quest organization you know, with that as your background, and yet you've learned about sexually transmitted infections, about co-testing, and of course about genetics. So when you're speaking to clinicians who have grown up really in the, I want to say the Mendelian world of genetics or the world of, well, the world of the quad screen, the world without cell-free DNA, how difficult is it to help us, say me, understand what's going on in genetics? Is it a big challenge and how do you, how do you educate those of us who are, you know, maybe a little clumsy in genetics? So genetics is an area that I feel that the guidelines, the guidelines society, professional societies do maintain updated, pretty clear guidelines. And I would also say in genetics, because it is so complex and so specialized that I feel like people are more inclined to move with, with the technology. And because we also offer so much support, you know, with genetic counselors, Kathleen, you people to like really support these decisions. Like people are are more, I think, willing and able and interested in kind of adding these to their repertoire. But also I think people like they recognize what they're doing when they're doing the quad screens and the maternal serum screens, right? Like really is like a, a somewhat subjective and somewhat guesswork. You're using kind of a number of factors that are all somewhat, I mean, they're related in a way, but not. And you're kind of using those in an algorithm to kind of make a determination 
along with an ultrasound, which again is a somewhat subjective based on your technician for how you're kind of making those determinations. So I think that while those still are sound in certain environments, this technology, it really is, it's robust. It's still considered a screen, but it really is, it's more straightforward. It's more objective and you can really get, I think, more sure answers earlier in time versus some of these other screening technologies. So Honestly, it has been somewhat a little bit less painful than I think other changes, incorporation of molecular technologies, you know, into some offices. So Karen, you're a PhD in immunology who comes out of an academic program. You've come into a large organization where you were presented with a lot of tests and a lot of assays that you've probably never seen before. What were the biggest challenges you faced in terms of your thinking? as you learned about prenatal genetic testing, cell-free DNA, what are the hurdles? And the reason I'm asking this is that a lot of the doctors find this to be challenging, and yet you seem to master it in pretty short order. But what was the biggest challenge you faced in learning to understand cell-free DNA or prenatal genetics? The biggest challenge is just the vast number of conditions. And honestly, a lot of it is the terminology and the way we represent it. Yeah. So where I'm going with this is I think the doctors think that this technology, this genetics technology is super challenging and super difficult. And so what I want you to share with the audience is how you came to understand something that is presented as very complex as something that actually is pretty straightforward and pretty simple when you understand that you're really only looking for the the common issues. How did you come to demystify that? Sure, sure. So, I mean, really, it comes down to, uh, I guess, prevalence. So, like for our prenatal screening or our non invasive, cell free, it's really about looking at, I mean, it's going back and looking at the prevalence of these conditions. And, you know, we really, we've identified three to what Kathleen already educated us on that are really the major conditions that are going to be identified prenatally that are going to have some consequence on the outcome of the pregnancy or the outcome of that child. So, I mean, I think it's really looking at what's prevalent, what's medically and clinically important, and really focusing on those conditions. When you are doing your prenatal screen, you're looking for three conditions, right? Three different aneuploidies. So three different instances where you you have some kind of chromosomal abnormality that is worth or should be shared with the parents because they can plan. It gives an opportunity to understand what potential challenges, make decisions, and really prepare for a somewhat, I don't know, like life-changing or life-altering type of disorder. So, I mean, you kind of just whittle it down to the ones that are clinically and medically relevant. It's really identifying those conditions that are going to be frequent enough in the population where it's going to be medically relevant. And then also conditions that that you can actually are actionable, we call, right? So identifying being responsible in what we identify and assured that having that information is going to provide the parents with, with actionable results that can actually probably and likely improve the the life of that future child by knowing them early on. So, I mean, I think that 
really, again, identifying the information that is clinically important and relevant and focusing on those conditions. Karen, if really, I want to get to your superpower. You have a unique ability to make super complex issues very simple and very available for the clinicians, for the business people. When I look at that, that superpower, and we apply that to issues like vaginitis or sexually transmitted infections or cervical cancer screening, cervical cancer dysplasia, and cell-free DNA, what is it that you do that makes it, makes it so available? I'm asking this because when women have discussions with their clinicians, they come in and they're worried. They, they worry that they don't have the vocabulary. They're worried that they are not going to use their words correctly. I want you to share with them what you do to make these complex issues simple and really with the focus on empowering them to have those conversations. First of all, from the patient side, don't be shy. Don't be scared. And just, you know, you just have to explain exactly what your concerns are, exactly what you're experiencing. But yeah, on the on the provider side, I mean, first of all, years and years of practice. Like I was a professor before this, so I spent years learning how to teach spermatogenesis to undergraduates, right? So I mean, it's a practice skill, but it's really finding ways to relate complex ideas, right? So I mean, examples, analogies, it's really just kind of finding relatability. And honestly, a lot of it too is kind of focusing and identifying the most important point out of a very large, complex amount of information and focusing in on what really matters, what the patient needs to know, what is going to matter to the patient and to the doctor, and really focusing in on that. So like for in your example of screening for chromosomal abnormalities, instead of focusing on the complexities of next generation sequencing and reads and genetic frequencies, you know, it's really saying, you know what, it's like a big puzzle. And if one of those pieces are missing, we, we identify that missing piece. And that tells us, that gives us a lot of information about what could, what your potential outcomes could be. So, I mean, it's just kind of, again, focusing in on the main message that is going to matter, what what is going to be key to that patient and giving them the information that they need and that they can understand and use. Bringing too much or too little is just going to leave people with more questions and no actionable, referenceable information that they can use to move forward. So, Kathleen, I'm going to ask you a similar question against the backdrop of health inequities. Once we address the issue of access and affordability, what can you do to empower women to have those important conversations with their clinicians when they're there, when they're visiting their doctor and they're in front of their physician or nurse practitioner or whomever? I think it it goes to educating women enough. And Karen, I really like what you said in terms of keeping it simple, keeping it kind of like synthesize it kind of down to the bite size, right, that I can digest and take with me and I don't need to reference a 
a large academic textbook in the conversation. It's the education. It's helping women understand the one, the two, or the three things that are important for them, getting them comfortable and providing access to that information in, in a way that they can obtain it. So whether it's in the public domain, right, on social media, technology has changed our world across every spectrum, right? And certainly in healthcare, it's come a long way. It's got a long way to go, but it's come a long way already. So leveraging social media to educate, inform, giving them, again, access to resources that with experts like Dr. Rassicode, who can simplify it, break it down, tease it out in terms of like, what's the What's the key thing I need to th remember when I'm going in for a well woman visit? What we do is in terms of providing those resources in you know easily accessible ways, we've got a Quest for Women's Health website where we have a lot of, again, easy to digest, terrific resources for women at the various stages of her life. I think it's providing those tools and resources to a patient that we can do our best work in, Pat, and and empowering that woman to have to have the confidence, to have the comfort and the courage to have that conversation with her physician. That's beautiful. So as we wrap up here, you know, we could talk about this universal screening. We can talk about STIs on the rise and artificial intelligence. But as I'm thinking about this meeting we've had today, the theme is always empowering women to have the conversations, to take care of themselves, to engage with their physicians or healthcare providers, to engage with their health. So what is it that you want us to remember? And Karen, I'm gonna start with you because what is it that you want to tell my two daughters, my three sisters, my wife, my, my mother, and all my other friends out there, the, the patients of mine who might be listening, what do you want them to remember? Go from this. And Kathleen, I want you to close with what do you want them to remember? Women, we are not men. And we deserve to be considered differently than men. And to Kathleen's point, do it for the people you care about or do it for yourself. But just do it. Go in, ask the questions. If you don't know what to ask, go to the website, call someone. Call Kathleen, go and get screened and ask the right questions. If you're concerned, don't be embarrassed. Don't be afraid. Get screened and do it for yourself, if not for everyone you love. Thank you, Karen. That was beautiful. I would say as a woman, you are different. You are special and you need to take care of yourself. And it doesn't take a lot to do those things, but use your voice Take care of yourself so that you can take care of others around you. And that's what matters the most. Well, I can't thank you all enough. I think the audience has heard two very powerful women. And I think that your commitment to health equity and to treating women throughout every stages of their lives is just unparalleled. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. If you've enjoyed the show today, Please like and subscribe so you don't miss another episode of Diagnostic Dialogues, Innovation and Insight, presented by Quest Diagnostics. I'm your host, Dr. Pat Aleja, and thank you again for listening.